Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read initiative. I am very excited. Today, I am speaking with the Rick Moore, um, and if you've been around the learning disability field in the Lower Mainland or in British Columbia or even Canada, you may be familiar with this case. Because Rick is a parent who has a child with severe dyslexia and came across the common occurrence of the public school system not being able to provide his son with the support that he needed to learn how to read and was put into the position where he had to choose uh, and his family had to choose to make the sacrifice financially to ensure that his son was going to be able to learn how to read. And he had sent him uh, to Kenneth Gordon School, which is a, or was a private school located in Burnaby, British Columbia, for students with dyslexia. Now, this school uh, is not free. It came with a price tag. And as we'll see through the conversation with Rick, uh, you know, this, this was a financial hardship for his family, as it is for most families to spend the money on sending their child to a private school, and also the hardship of finding the time to get them there. I mean, luckily, at the point, uh, there was a bus, bus system, so your family wasn't in charge of uh, the commute for your son, um, but as someone who also went to that school uh, during the same time period, it it was a bit of a drive. <laughs> and this school was amazing. It has saved the lives of several children. Um, it is no longer Kenneth Gordon School. It has now uh, moved locations, shifted focus a little bit. Uh, but uh, is now called Kenneth Gordon Maplewood School. And I think that the big thing that frustrates me is learning to read as a basic human right. And that has been set out by the United Nations. Uh, and unfortunately, even today, there are thousands of kids across the province of British Columbia um, tens of thousands across the country and millions across the world that are being denied this right to a free and appropriate public education. Uh, and their families are put in a position whether they're, they're going to have to do whatever they can to try and find the funds, find the resources, and find the support for their child to learn how to read. Now, it's easier said than done because the training um, is very specific. It's not difficult, but it does take skilled training and skilled teaching to help remediate these children. But before I get on my soapbox, I'd like to invite Rick to say hello, give an introduction about who he is briefly, and allow him to get on his soapbox. Okay. Thanks, Catherine. Um, well, I, I, there's nothing special about 
about me. I'm just a retired bus driver. At the time, uh, Jeff was in uh, uh, Braemar Kindergarten. I, I was a Greyhound driver, so I was away a lot of the time on the road. And uh, my wife, the, the burden of, of uh, dealing with Jeff's difficulties and, and negotiating with the school for services fell on my wife, Michelle. And I would just like to preface everything I say by um, giving Michelle virtually all the credit for our success with Jeff. And here's the thing about our case. It was something that I did that, which, and, and it, it, it created a distraction for Michelle. It takes so much energy to do the day in, day out, nuts and bolts work of learning to become an expert in your child's disability, in, in being able to educate yourself well enough to speak with authority to the school. And it actually doesn't take that long to become more of an authority but it is very stressful because it's very easy to become a problem parent. You never want to be approaching the school throwing F-bombs. And believe me, there are times when you are tempted to. So I give Michelle all the credit. She found our pursuit, 16-year pursuit of the court case to be a stress that was almost too much for her. And the thing is, this it can be something that breaks families up because the it, it's almost like dealing with grief. You each parent is so um, focused on the, the pain and suffering of their child and how on earth you're going to get them through uh, the, the experience, the light at the end of the tunnel seems so far away that just like with grief, you're not there to support each other. So the fact that Michelle and I are, are still married after all this time and we are together to see the reward of what we've done is amazing. I just wanna stop for a second before I forget. Uh, when we're talking about the Moore decision and the case and, and, and the background, it's important to remember, so I'll do a bit of disclaimer, I am not a lawyer. Francis Kelly was our lawyer. Uh, Francis, with the backing of class, Community Legal Assistance Society, is the one almost totally responsible for our case reaching the Supreme Court of Canada. There were so many times that the government and the district through, put uh, roadblocks in front of us. They would say, oh, this precedent means that, this decision means that you should be thrown out of court. Um, and there were times when, uh, well, right from the beginning, the BC Human Rights Commission actually rejected the claim. And I thought early on, I thought when these things would happen, that was it, we were done. And Francis would always say, don't worry. And she would trump their precedent or whatever source, a case they cited with one that was, that was stronger. Uh, without Francis, I don't think we would have succeeded. And it turned out, uh, engaging, get, the only thing I can take credit for is it, getting Francis engaged in the facts of our case and 
we were incredibly lucky because it turned out Francis was the foremost legal expert in human rights and disability law in the country. Um, so that was a long-winded disclaimer. Where were we at, <laughs> Catherine? Well, let's just start at the beginning. Now, I know we went into your journey in our last episode, but just briefly set the stage. So you discover your child has dyslexia, recognize that the school system in North Vancouver was not providing the support that he needed. And in fact, the school psychologist, which is key to the case, said that he needed to go to Kenneth Gordon School to learn how to read. So where were you at as a mindset, as a parent at that time? Did you feel hope, defeated, distressed, wondering where this money was going to come from? So uh, hope is the word. That is always the thing. And um, so we were learning the language of negotiating with the local school. Um, we learned about Orton Gillingham because they gave us a recommendation, recommendation to engage an Orton Gillingham tutor. Everything that they presented to us as a possible step forward, we, we took their word for it and we accepted it. And yet, for instance, with the Orton Gillingham tutor, what we discovered is, yes, we could see he was making, he had a fantastic tutor, Deirdre Bell, um, but we could see that what he was learning in with her in the sessions two or three times a week was always undermined by him being put back into the classroom because he was it's a slow process especially if you're only getting the two three one or two or three times a week it's not intensive remediation and he would be put in the classroom and because he wasn't progressing fast enough every time he was put back into the classroom his confidence would be undermined again. And, and he, he just never got a chance to believe that he could be competent in the regular classroom. So um, he develops childhood migraines. Uh, we go to a neurologist. The neurologist writes a letter to the district saying, if you deal with his learning difficulties, that'll likely solve the migraine problem. We present that letter to the district. They in, in court, they said it, it didn't prompt, it wasn't the reason he got a full psych ed, it was the reason. They had to respond to the, when you can show harm. That meant he, he uh, with the full psych ed, showed that he was severely dyslexic, that qualified him for the diagnostic center. Bad luck, because of a funding shortage, the only thing the district did was cut the diagnostic center program that existed for 20 years was well-respected. In hindsight, wouldn't have been enough for Jeff because it's just a four-month program maximum. He would have been put back in the classroom. The same effect that had happened with the Orton-Gillingham tutor would have happened to him again. Back in the classroom, he hasn't learned fast enough. He's just basically been teased because for a brief four months, he's been given the best practices uh, uh, solution to his, his learning difficulty for somebody with severe dys learning dyslexia, we now know that lasts years. It needs years of commitment to uh, remediation. So 
But as you said, the school psychologist says that was the only thing in the district that was meant to uh, provide intensive remediation. The key is intensive remediation. Not North Gillingham tutor once or twice a week, not uh, a four month program, uh, but at the time, at least for that four months, it was intensive. She said to us, now that it's closed, if there's any way at all you can afford to put him in the private school, that's what you should do. It's not in writing because the, uh, every previous school-based meeting, there were notes taken. They knew what they were gonna say to us couldn't be put on record. So anyway, we, you have to remember that we try all these things, but we still see that he's being left behind, that he's being harmed. He goes to Kenneth Gordon. We see his self esteem. We talked about this last Monday. He, 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 we, immediately we see a self esteem being rebuilt. We see progress with him learning. By the end of grade four, which was so, he couldn't go to grade three because there was a waiting list to Kenneth Gordon. So he, a whole year, they're just marking time. In fact, on the stand, they said, well, we couldn't do more for him because uh, my wife, Michelle, said, I don't want you to do anything that's going to harm him. They took that as an excuse to not do, to do nothing. Basically, babysit him for a whole year. He goes to grade four. We see this tremendous progress. Grade five, I start phoning around, hoping somebody else will take up the cause, like the ombudsman. They say, oh, really sympathize. Yes, this is unjust. It's not in our remit. Give us another phone call. It, that phone call, the last phone call led to community legal assistance, led to me convincing my lawyer that, lawyer that we had a set of facts that were strong enough to take to court and we begin the, prog the, the process. But the hope that we could find something that was working, would work for Jeff had already been fulfilled. He, we knew he was in the right place. My concern, the reason I got angry was not about Jeff, but I was angry about what we've been through. I was angry about having to remortgage my house to afford a private school education that I'd never contemplated. But what led me to pursue a systemic complaint was thinking about all the kids who were not as well off as we were, and we weren't that, we were modest income family, thinking about all the kids falling through the cracks. So from the very beginning, I wanted to pursue a systemic complaint against the province. I wasn't even thinking of the district because I realized the districts were just set up to be this shield for the government. And um, so uh, it, takes, it took us almost two, at least two years to get the complaint ruled systemic. We had to go to the BC Supreme Court. We got a ruling from Justice Shaw that said, yes, they've alleged all these ways in which the, the ministry is discriminating against uh, dyslexic kids, not just Jeff. And he rules it's systemic. Uh, at the time, there was a BC Human Rights Commission whose mandate was to identify uh, systemic discrimination. Um, and so we start presenting the case, finally it gets to the tribunal um, after jumping so many hurdles that the district and the ministry had put in our way 
once again, all because of Francis' use of the law and, and Tate's law. Um, and we start presenting the case with the lawyer from the BC Human Rights Commission alongside us. The BC Human Rights Commission is going to handle the uh, systemic issues that we had identified. What was the response from the government? There were two responses immediately in the first few weeks of us presenting the case. Number one was they got rid of the Human Rights Commission. That lawyer that was there at the table with us to cover the systemic nature of our complaint was no more. That was fell on our shoulders. Even though we had, as part of our case, Francis had, had been working hand in glove with the commissioner, that's gone. The number two thing they did was they got rid of SLD severely. So when we started this case, if you got the psych ed that determined your child was severely learning disabled, they were put in a distinct category that was entitled to targeted funding. So the first two responses, get rid of the Human Rights Commission to, to help to, in an attempt to stymie the systemic complaint side of the case, and they get rid of SLD, which makes our kids even more invisible. This was my first experience of what we ended up facing the entire length of the case. The government can change the rules at any point along the way. So it takes two and a half years to present the case because now, because we, we did get it, uh, ruled a systemic complaint. We were bringing all kinds of things, how they, they messed around with the funding, uh, what led up to the, the lack of funding uh, that caused the closure of the diagnostic center, how the districts handled that, why they kept certain programs, uh, why they kept all the programs except for the reading program, um, what the LEC was, before, was for. LEC was never intended for intense remediation. The thought that that you could close the diagnostic center, the one center there exists in existence for intensive remediation and put them back in the classroom with the LAC, we proved that was uh, not, that was against the school act. We used the school act that, you know, to show that inclusion is a continuation of a continuum of services, not just everybody in the classroom with a few supports or not. Um, and uh, so, uh, we we win after two and a, two years and another year. It took about three years to get the decision. We eventually get the decision in 2005. We'd started the case in 1997. 2005, we get the BC Human Rights decision. And for anybody interested, um, it's uh, you can find it at uh, if you go, if you Google BCHRT 205 case 580 Moore v BC and the school district 44 it's uh, 304 pages and it was criticized by many as turning our case into a royal commission on education and, and just 
let me for listeners um we will put the links in the show notes to these so, so you can access them when you when you read through that there's a lot the whole pages and pages about uh how the district uh, how the province uh, funded the districts and all that stuff but then you get down and it gives a a point by point uh timeline of jay's uh, jeff's experience in the school it it breaks down all the arguments uh, on, uh, on why it is a systemic case. In the end, Barbara uh, McNaughton, the chair, she went on to become a Supreme, BC Supreme Court judge, the chair of the tribunal ruled entirely in our favor. Everything we asked for, she got. And this was, this was the shining moment for the entire special education community. Because this decision, if it had been upheld, would have meant that the, the change would be, have to come from the top down. The ministry would have to take responsibility for ensuring that this, the efficacy of programs not just that the district spent the dollars they were or were not given in a particular way. They would have to audit to make sure that inclusion worked and that there was meaningful access for all learners in the system. Um, I just want to yeah, mention sure. at this time, in the province of British Columbia, the Ministry of Education did do a review a special education review looking at best practices for teaching students. And it was conducted by Dr. Linda Siegel and it was ignored. So they recognized that there was a problem and they went so far as to commission a, a project done by a, a leading educator in the field to see what was best practices for helping these students succeed. Uh, and when we saw you know, curriculum revisions, it wasn't reflected in the curriculum revisions at the time. That's right. I just want to stop there and, and it's, it's, uh, because you mentioned Linda Siegel and Linda Siegel's story reflects one of the really ironic and uh, things about our case and, and what uh, is, typifies the situation of somebody like a school psychologist or like Linda Siegel uh, trying to work within the system. So when we presented our case at the Human Rights Tribunal, every side had experts. And of course we had uh, Dr. Fedorovich who did a huge, psych ed assessment of Jeff to confirm the other assessments and, and to provide expert testimony. All the experts, uh, there were about six or seven of them, said that Jeff was not getting enough uh, in this, uh, from the school district that would have uh, enabled him to learn to read and, uh, and, and, not, and, and not damaged him. Linda Siegel was working with the district. She was doing a pilot project 
she was doing good work. And as you say, she was very knowledgeable and she presented reports. But in our case, she uh, was called by the district. She was the district's expert witness. And of all the experts, she was the only one that said that if we'd left Jeff in the regular school with the supports he'd been getting, he would have been able to progress. Now, I believe that that is because she was between a rock and a hard place. She was doing good work. Uh, if she had said anything different, it's likely that district would have let her go. Um, and that program, good program. It, I think it was a pilot program that was like a three-year study follow. They followed kids. And, and so it, it, just like her report, it exactly what best practices would be. But in order to keep that doing that work, she uh, testified against us and said, Jeff would have been fine if he'd been left in the, in the, in the school. I, I can't explain why she would do that. I know that since then she did a 180 and became involved with Learning Disability Association of BC. I've met her many times and talked to her personally. I've never criticized her uh, for doing what she did, even though, um, because the school psychologist did exactly the same thing. The school psychologist that, that who was at the heart of her case, it, it's her giving us the, the advice to put him in Kenneth Gordon and, and us being able to prove that she said that was the only thing left for him to do with the closure of the diagnostic center was one of the, the cruxes of our case. However, in the, the, the tribunal hearing, she signed an affidavit. The lawyers for the district made her sign an affidavit saying, oh no, it was only one of many recommendations. I, when she signed that affidavit, I got so mad because I knew it wasn't true. But it's mm -hmm. the same thing. She was put in a position where she's doing good work. She feels like she's helping kids. She's gonna, if she wants to keep her uh, credibility within the district, oh, I'll just sign this thing. And, and there was nothing to, 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 to um, for us to rebut because they never kept a, it was just our word against theirs. They never kept notes of that meeting. Yeah, so any parent listening. <laughs> yeah, keep on the website, yeah. you know, and it's important. And as a parent in the, like in a similar, well, not similar in the sense, I have children with learning disabilities and I know how easy it is not to keep that paper trail. Um, but it is important to write the notes, send that email confirming what you discussed. It's a lot different now than it was uh, in your time with the ease of doing this written communication and having that physical proof that can't be, um, you know, if you send an email and it's in the cloud, it's it's there and it can be called on. It, well, but, you, I, that is such a good piece of advice. Send, you have a, a verbal meeting you you write an email that gives your version and you send it back with any of your uh, and to provoke a response so that there is a paper trail. Absolutely, the, the thing to do. Um, well, in our case, uh, we had uh, applied for uh, the the tax credit for Jeff's tuition as a a uh, medical expense, and I was able to convince the school psychologist to 
phoned the appeals officer. She said to the appeals officer at CRA, uh, he's the most severe I've ever seen. And yes, with the closure of the diagnostic, that's what I said. She didn't realize that I could do a freedom of information. I get the transcript and that proof that she had um, in fact said that Kenneth Gordon was the only alternative was a 50% of why we uh, won the individual complaint. So um, we get everything we want from the BC Human Rights Bureau after about seven years, 2005. And then it goes to the BC Supreme Court. The BC Supreme Court said that um, Special, special education is the service, service at issue alone. And um, so I, I'm just gonna read a couple of things here that I've taken from the, the, the real uh, crux of the, the decision. So adequate special education is not a dispensable luxury for those with severe learning disabilities. It is the ramp that provides access to the statutory commitment made to all children in BC. That is the, the, the shining light of the decision. That, that um, uh, the service to which Jeffrey is entitled is education generally to define special education as the service, as the BC court, uh, as the BC courts did, uh, to define special education as, as the service at issue risks de descending into a kind of separate but equal approach. Comparing Jeffrey only with other special needs students would mean that the district could cut all special needs programs and yet be immune from a claim of discrimination. If Jeffrey is compared only to other special needs students, full consideration cannot be given to whether he had meaningful access to the education to which all students in BC are entitled. The risks of perpetuating the very disadvantage and exclusion the code is intended to remedy. Uh, so that is the extent of our systemic win. And it's of major importance. It is, we did not fail entirely in the systemic complaint. It's like, uh, but it's just, what it does is it's, it's like in the civil rights movement in the States, proclamation, emancipation of the slaves, but you're going to be in, in, in surfing, you know. I mean, we're going to make we're going to we're going to find ways to still disenfranchise you. Mm -hmm. it, it's that kind of thing. We put it's a it's a it it's kind of like a, it's a tease. It's a tease. It's saying you have a right to meaningful access to general education, and special education will be the ramp that gives you that. Mm -hmm. But the failure of the Supreme Court 
to uphold the systemic, systemic complaint against the province means that they are able to turn around and change the rules and block parents from using that language in any meaningful way. So um, they, they bring back the BC Human Rights Commission, but they eliminate the mandate to pursue systemic complaints. In fact, what becomes their mandate is to force parents into mediation. And, um, and, and of course, they, they get rid of uh, the fact that uh, the, the, uh, the designation of severely learning disabled, they get rid of targeted funding, they get rid of, they're, they're in the process of getting ready Q de definition. Um, they, they, uh, they now feel, the province feels totally immune and the districts feel totally immune because the, the community legal assistance, they were almost bankrupted by our case. They're not gonna take on something like this. To find somebody that would be willing to take a case pro bono uh, to, against the, the, the district, uh, very, very unlikely. Why we're, we're, we're mediating with this family, you know, we're giving them a little something, but what actually they're doing is they're just giving a little something of special ed and, and saying basically what the Court of Appeals said, oh, you're getting something, you're getting more than others. You're blocked from actually using the language of the decision to get full meaningful access. Um, so I am incredibly frustrated. Yes. You can use the precedent, the individual whim that, and precedent that we set to uh, uh, confront the districts and get some services that you may not otherwise have gotten. Yes, um, you, you, uh, you can uh, use the case to uh, to get lip service from some people within the system. But, and yes, it may be possible, it may be possible to uh, put together a class action that, against the province. But I know for a fact many people have tried and each attempt, and there have been several, failed because to bring together all the different special education communities into a focused uh, class action has proved almost impossible because the individual needs of each ex excluded group are not the same. It, you know, it's uh, my frustration uh, is. Uh, is almost worse today than uh, it, it was back then. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, made it, I had to let my dog out. I, I think the problem that we're seeing is that, you know, we there is recognition that this is a problem. And we see that within the districts, within the schools, from the teachers, 
and the ministry. And it's finding a way to fix it that is realistic given the constraints. And I, I know when I've spoken to you in the past, you've said that there's a bit of hush money going around, right? So when when people take your case uh, and use it as, well, this is the precedent and, you know, our child deserves to get the support that they need. Well, then there's there's some, they find a way to get the support, but then the family can no longer go against saying that my child's not given the support. And it, it takes a lot to say, I am going to do this for the good of society when your primary concern is your child's well-being. And yeah, that's right. This is this is the conflict that between Michelle and my, myself. Yeah. She's exhausted just doing the day-to-day -day negotiating with the school system, doing the uh, the research, well, what's available. Uh, you know, uh, pressuring without becoming a problem parent on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm just a distraction being off talking on the radio and the TV or, or because that's what happened when people, when, when the, the district offered to settle uh, our com complaint, we were years into this fight and people had put all their faith and hope into our case making a difference. But the, the, to this day, Michelle <laughs> would rather that we weren't doing this. And, and, and that's just an ex one example, our, our family example of what, so when I was with, uh, I got in, after we won at the BC Human Rights, oh, after we won at the, S the Supreme Court, I got invited to be on the board of directors of the Learning Disabilities Association of Vancouver. And um, I found that I'm not good at politics, I'm not good at fundraising, I'm not good at, at working uh, with a board to, to push an agenda. But the one thing I really liked doing was being the board rep at the parent support meetings. Now, LDAV is on the east side of Vancouver and, and they run a tutoring center and the vast, almost all are, are, are from lower income families on the east side of Vancouver. Many single moms, they don't have any extra energy for uh, advocating for their kids. Maybe they don't have the education that allows them to, to learn the language. Maybe they're in danger of becoming the, the uh, problem parent because their frustration might, uh, you know, have them uh, use F-bombs or threats or whatever, be ex excluded from the, the school entirely. Um, so I used to, I used to give these, these uh, be there at these sessions with the parents, uh, mainly so they could vent their frustrations, their exhaustion, their, their, their gratitude that there was just one little program of tutoring that uh, they could see that was helping their kids. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, I, I met so many people along the way that were 
at wit's end uh, because it, even, even in Jeff's case, Jeff, well, no, sorry, in Jeff's case, he was extremely lucky because there is a small window of opportunity even for a place like Kenneth Gordon to succeed. You probably met kids that didn't get, um, that didn't get to a, a Kenneth Gordon or a Fraser Academy till they were older, like in their teen years, when peer group becomes everything. So you guys, you and Jeff, you went there young enough to, um, and, and you spoke about this the other day about appreciating the sacrifice that your parents had made and um, wanting to do well by them. And, you know, but when you get an older kid that's been in the, his public school until say grade seven or eight or nine or whatever, and now peer group is everything for a teenager, and now they're being yanked out of their public school to be put in this kid for dummies, they think, you don't get the same rate of success. So it, it, you have to be, so I, parents, please, the, the earlier you can get your child into a, a place that is at least coming close to using best practices, the more uh, chance you have that your money won't be wasted on, on the child. I mean, if you're, it's bad enough you have to go and maybe remortgage your house, but if you do that, and then, and, and that being said, I didn't see many kids that were actually totally, you know, failures at, at Fraser Academy. But you and Jeff, because you went there to more, I mean, it would have been better if you were there in grade one, two, and three, but at least you got there when you were still um, not having this, this thing about peer group quite in quite the same way. Although, I get your point about the bus ride. Jeff was the same, it was an hour each way. One of his great talents was being able to fall asleep on the bus. You know, all the kids are, you know, roughhousing and doing everything as you you would remember they did on the bus. Oh, yes. But um, he was able to just, you know, fall asleep. So- uh, Well, and it's funny that you're bringing up the bus because I remember uh, the handy dart bus driver very well. Uh, his name was Glenn. And on Fridays, we'd sing Hail to the Bus Driver. It took a special talent. That's right. You know, because Handy Dart didn't come on board right away. Our first year at Kenneth Gordon, we had a group of, of parents. It was the first time there was a group of parents of kids going to uh, Kenneth Gordon get, get together. One, one family hosted it. And we, because we had to come up with a way of getting them to school, and we came up with a uh, hiring a person to do it mm -hmm. um and uh it, it, that didn't work because there were so many kids from north end that uh, we were able to convince Hattie Dart to take it off they didn't really want to do that it wasn't something they were originally thinking about doing when they created Hattie Dart but it, it seemed the way it worked at Hattie Bart Dart that uh that not all bus drivers wanted to do that I mean, I was a bus driver. I know what it's like to do a school trip and have, you know, all this noise and confusion behind you. Um, but our guy was great too, Bob. He was just such a good guy. And, um, and I know from Jeff's experience, um, 
even though it was two hours out of his day, he knew he was in the right place and mm -hmm. it was a small price to pay. Very lucky for us, Michelle, one of the other things she did was before and after school care. So those two kids were from the regular school and, and um, so he didn't have complete, uh, he didn't completely abandon um, uh, his, his, his neighborhood friends. Also, um, I, I think I mentioned my mom and dad did uh, daycare for us. And uh, it, I mean, so these things didn't happen at the same time. But anyway, we were fortunate that he was either with his cousins or two of his neighborhood kids. I, I, we were so, so lucky. I mean, it was exhausting. It did, the light at the end of the tunnel, tunnel, tunnel was a glimmer for so long um, that uh, it, but all that being said, when I look back on it, we, we were so lucky and we just had one kid with LD. As you know, as you experienced, there are families that have two or three kids with LD. So there's multiplies mind. just multiplies the the exhaustion and the you know, the frustration and the financial hardship um yeah so um and also the, the legal the thing is one thing. the legal thing is is one thing um and i'm glad i am glad personally it was the making of me the whole the whole thing actually the whole struggle was the making of me and it's the thing i'm proudest of in my life is that Michelle and I uh, were able to save Jeff's life, basically. Um, but the legal thing is, uh, it is something I did. Great. It it did it did get certain issues, systemic issues decided. The case can be used if you if you study it and you have the guts to confront the system and you know how to do that with being without being a problem parent. I I learned so much. I learned that the science has been established for decades. Mm -hmm. The science of reading, and yet we still basically are still fighting about whole language, because the universities are full of people that grew up, deans of education who grew up in whole language and are still fighting a rear guard action to frustrate the science. I don't understand it. And um, I don't understand uh, the teachers union being so hard to, um, get. I mean, they did, they did become an intervener in our case and the leadership of the union did understand it. They, they, get, they, they funded a lawyer to be with us in court. But I think for the vast majority of teachers, um, changing the status quo is a bridge too far for them. It's too comfortable. Yeah, and... It's also recognizing that what you have done in the past might have caused harm. And being able to recognize that it's not your fault. If this is what you were taught to do by higher education, 
And if this is what the curriculum by the province or the state that you are teaching in says you are supposed to do, well, you're following the rules. But knowing that this isn't what is best um, it, it is hard. And, you know, we are starting to see changes, especially in the U.S. I mean, we fall behind the U.S. a bit in several things. And it's it's the parents that have said, this isn't good enough. We are not having enough. And recognizing that, yes, right now you and I are fighting the fight for the dyslexic student. But I'm also fighting the fight for all students from whatever background, in whatever location, deserve to have the education and literacy instruction that is going to serve the best for the most students. And based on Dr. Linda Siegel's research in North Vancouver, we have seen that, you know, with the appropriate screening and instruction, we can get over 95% of the students. Rate can be every, every bit as good as the, as the private school. Exactly. Um, and we need to make it so it's not an issue of whether your parents have the money to send you to the after-school tutoring or to the private schools and recognizing that this is a systemic issue that needs change on multiple levels. Now, your case didn't just stay at the Supreme Court of British Columbia. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. Can you talk us a little bit about that whole process and journey? So, uh, uh after the BC Supreme Court, it went to the BC Court of Appeal, and uh, two of the judges said the same thing that the uh, judge at the BC Supreme Court was that it, it it's not about education generally; it's just about special education. And he got more than some other kids, and you didn't attempt to compare him with other kids. We said you, you don't have to compare him with other kids; you just have to show he was discriminated against. And one judge, Justice Rolls. Uh, wrote a uh, uh, that um, what was quoted by the Supreme Court that it wasn't uh, you didn't need to use a comparator very legal term I won't get into but um, that uh, it, special education she, she made the decision that led the Supreme Court to to write the famous quote special education is the ramp that uh, provides meaningful access to education generally. Um, and because we had that one dissenting vote at the BC Court of Appeal, uh, the Supreme Court uh, accepted the case. So we have this long, long uh, journey, two years to get it uh, through the commission, three years to get a decision from the, uh, the BC Human Rights Tribunal, another few years to uh, uh, more than a few years to get it through the BC Supreme Court and the BC Court of Appeal. And the, the Supreme Court of Canada accepts it. Michelle and I, with our lawyers, we go to Ottawa. We're there in the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, I can't tell you how exciting. Hold on. At this point, Jeff has already graduated. That's right. We're in 2012. So, your son is no longer in school and you are still fighting this battle, even though it's not gonna affect 
the outcome of your child's public education because he's be moved beyond that. So you have really decided to take this step to try and make it better for the future children and recognizing that it's more than just your son that is needed this support. So thank you for doing that. Jeff is already a journeyman plumber. He's, uh, yeah, his, his potential has been preserved because of everything Michelle did. And um, so uh, we're there in court and it's, it's a one day procedure. So it's the only part in that whole journey that's like TV, you know, it's a one day thing. And um, what impresses me about, what impressed me about the justices on the Supreme Court, all nine of them had obviously read every single word uh, in uh, on those 304 pages of BC human rights. They, they and they knew the law. And uh, what's interesting is that when you watch the lawyers uh, in the lower courts, they have all done all their homework and they've got reams of questions they're gonna ask and they just, you know, move ahead with very few objections. Occasionally, they'll, they'll be, but it's very easy to, preserve their line of argument and their train of thought and so on. When they're before the justices at the Supreme Court, the justice are interrupting them all the time in their argument, throwing up, yes, but what about this? And yes, about what about that? They've got to stop their, their flow and suddenly respond to this question. It's almost out of left field. Now, of course, they, they're practiced at it, but it's about what interested me was their demeanor. So Francis, what made her so good was this interruption would come, a little smile would come on her face and she would have the answer just like that. And her demeanor was still just, just the same, confident, and here's the answer. And, and she would always use the question to and turn it to her advantage. The other side, you would see this like, deer in the headlights kind of thing. Oh, you know, now, and they would be lawyerly and they would answer it. But um, she was just amazing in, in that situation. But yeah, so I was really impressed with the Supreme Court. Um, they, they knew, they understood the facts and I could tell by their questioning that we were really strong on the individual case on Jeffrey's facts. Mm -hmm. When the decision came out, so we were there in spring of 2012, and it comes, the decision comes in November of 2012, and I see that they are 100% behind the individual facts. Um, I'm elated, but the deeper I read it, the, the case, um, the more disappointed I am that they're letting the province off the hook. And to, I just reread the decision the other day. And to this day, I don't get their reasoning because they cite cases that say, basically the court should really uh, do its best to refrain from interfering in the with the legislative branch, the province. Uh, legislature. Um, 
And yet there were other cases they mentioned that, that we cited where, uh, like Grismer, where uh, discriminations against one person was used to create systemic change. That was a case where people that are almost blind can, can take tests to get their driver's license. And because, uh, and it was Francis who won that case, by the way, Grismer, mm -hmm. landmark case. Imagine the, how good a lawyer is to get almost blind people the right to take driver's tests. I mean, amazing. Um, and, and that did uh, get established uh, systemic things. So it, it seems to me they bent over backwards to do the minimum to put things right. And the minimum was to give us an individual win which set a precedent and they gave us this language about what special education is and is not, and that it's the ramp and all, you know, all this, this, this shining hill language. Um, but they didn't get it that by taking, by letting the province off the hook, they were putting all the responsibility back on the parents. I always felt, and people would often kind of make the analogy that I was tilting at windmills. Don Quixote going off after the window. Um, well, that's where we're stuck for the most part. The parents getting angry enough and having it enough ability to to um, to make a case to get somebody really good like Francis but really without um, so without a, a, a pro bono advocate you know lawyer there is absolutely no way you can take this on community legal assistance is not going to take on a 16-year fight against the government that I mean, we could have settled the individual complaint five years in. So 11 more years for a systemic complaint that we didn't win. They're not gonna do that anymore. They got, and, and they know they can't because the Human Rights Commission doesn't do systemic complaints anymore. And, and uh, the tribunal uh, is gonna force you into mediation. What's the point? Uh, so, the reason you're able to get me to talk to you, here we are over 10 years after the decision, the reason I get up on my soapbox and tell this story is I'm hoping somebody out there in the next generation um, figures out a way to get a class action going. I know it's been tried many times and not, not succeeded yet. Some way to penetrate the system and get them to do the right thing because it's not going to cost them anything to do the right thing. The kids are in the system. They, they succeed in getting forcing kid, uh, getting parents to do them a favor and put them take them out of the public system and into, put them in a private school. Uh, they, the kids, you and I know, about 20% of kids entering the system are at risk for leading failure. There's a dropout rate that has been constant for decades. It's about 20%. Why can't you, you know? Well, one of the reasons is they keep the incidence levels invisible because they don't 
through testing enough. You know, as you mentioned, there is some testing down the line, but they they conspire to keep the numbers unknown. Um, so academic studies have, have have firmed up the numbers pretty pretty well. Once again, about one in five kids is at risk. Most of them LD, and the dropout rate's twenty percent. It, it's just they're satisfied with it. They are satisfied to fail year by year, 20% of the student population. How do we know that most of them fail because they, they, they aren't taught to read? Because 80% of the prison population is illiterate. We know that um, all those kids overdosing at Maine and Hastings, half of them are there because they dropped out in grade 10. Why? Because the system didn't teach them to read. Here's the thing about reading. In order to mean, meaningfully, meaningfully access the general education services, the crucial building block is the ability to read. If, if you can't read, how do you absorb any of the other information that is being taught to you? Thankfully, your generation came it, 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 it along at a time when uh, text-to-speech was being developed. And so there are tools now uh, that kids of the 50s and 60s and 70s didn't have. That's great. I'm a bit of a Luddite, as I told you. I, I, I don't have a smartphone or anything, but I am so... Michelle was a mole within the public school system. She worked at Set BC. She was able to get Kurzweil text-to-speech for Jeff. Godsend, a godsend, that technology. Oh, you just poked her head in the room. She doesn't want me mentioning her name. Um, <laughs> don't talk about me. Um, yeah, so I always think about that, how fortunate um, that you know, it's it's uh, it's a double-edged sword uh, technology. Though, uh, when we went to court for Jeff's uh, disability tax credit, they actually uh, were able to allowed to hack into his Facebook. They said, "Why are you? You know, is this you writing this?" It turned out it was his now wife Amanda writing it. But they, you know, they will go to that extent. Yeah. To uh, undermine you know for sure well thank you so much for talking to me today about the supreme court case uh our next episode we're going to focus on how you'd like to see this make changes in the future and we can even uh, talk about how the ontario human rights commission referenced this in their recent report on the right to read well it would be a pleasure catherine um just one Proviso, I don't uh, endorse any particular reading method. I talk of about course. what Orton Gillingham did for Jeff, but I'm not here to support anybody particular. Uh, One commercial program, it's it's not a program. That's it's right. not a product. It is science informed instruction. That's what, that's what I want. Yeah. yeah. Okay, always, a, it's a pleasure, Catherine. Thank you.